How are you all doing today? You still doing good? Good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. All right. Well, I had a fun time last night. Um, I came in here to read through notes, and uh, that's pretty normal. Um, there were some folks here getting ready for this dinner, and uh, got to talk to Bentley and Brett, and um, I asked them if they knew a word. Um, they both heard it. They both heard it, but neither one of them could tell me what it meant. Um, how many of you know what the word serendipity means? Is this a yes or a no? I think you probably could figure it out from context. All right. Well, serendipity, serendipity is a fun word, um, mostly because you get to say it and it just it just rolls off the tongue, right? Seren- everybody say serendipity. serendipity. Wow, that's cool. Um, how many things would you guys say if I asked you? No, no, okay. Um, so serendipity, <laughs> everybody likes dictionary definitions. Here's serendipity. It's the occurrence and development of events by chance in a happy or beneficial way. Okay? So the occurrence or development of events by chance in a happy or beneficial way. Um, an example of this, I was trying to come up with a good example of serendipity. Um, and one of them that I found last night was... Uh, what was Christopher Columbus? Uh, Christopher Columbus and him discovering the Americas was serendipitous. Um, he was he was not looking for this new land. It's not what he was after. Instead, he was trying to find a way to Asia, find a way to the West to find Asia. And instead, he winds up landing in the Americas. And his discovery was something much greater than a trade route. Um, he actually found a land that they had not previously known. It was something that they didn't know existed. Um, and if we, if we actually stopped and we thought through what, was, what had the greater impact on humanity, the discovery of the Americas or a trade route to Asia, which one had the greater impact on humanity as a whole? Well, I think we could pretty safely say the discovery of Americas. Um, I mean, just think about the last, let's just say 500 years. I know it's actually more than that since Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Um, well, I know it's been more than that, but let's just say the last 500 years, it's had a pretty tremendous impact on the world, right? The discovery of the, Amer- the Americas. So um, really, it's had a pretty tremendous impact. So that's serendipity. He was looking for one thing, and instead, by chance, he found something that was even more beneficial, something that was even bigger. That's what serendipity is. And the first time I heard this word, um, I, was in a, I was in high school science, and we were talking about somehow this word serendipity came up, and everybody just looked at the teacher like, what are you talking about? Um, and he said, okay, serendipity is like this. It's like you're out working in the yard, and you decide you're going to dig a fence post or something like that. So you dig a hole, and you wind up striking oil. That's serendipity. Just by chance, you find something that's beneficial, something that is uh, very different from what you were looking for. Um, really, it's looking for one thing and finding something better. Um, Today, today we're going to look at one of the most, um, the most impactful, one of the biggest passages in the Bible. Um, it's most commonly known as the Transfiguration. Uh, most commonly known as the Transfiguration. And in this scene, the disciples, I think they had a bit of serendipity. Now, you could say it wasn't chance because God knew exactly what he was doing, and you're right, that's true. Um, but from the disciples' perspective, this is not what they were looking for. They were looking for one thing, but they wound up finding something far greater than what they were looking for to begin with. Um, So that's what we're going to look at today. But as they find this, um, what we need to see as we open this text is that this is just bathed in Old Testament imagery. 
just bathed in Old Testament imagery. And I, I think it'll be helpful for us if we slow down, we look at all of these, all of this Old Testament imagery. Now understand, as we walk through this, I'm not going to pull out all of the pictures from the Old Testament. I, I'm going to pull out ten. And it's not all of them. Okay? Um, so just understand that I'm not going to be that thorough where we're going to pick every one of them out. But... All of, these, all of these images, all of these allusions to the Old Testament, they help us see who Jesus is. And, and in the end, I think it really brings us down to one, one very clear application. Um, and that's to listen to him. That's to listen to him, to listen to Jesus. So I would invite you, let's stand together out of respect for reading God's word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13 together today. So the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 17, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is, is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we, as we open this, this text, as we open to this passage, and we begin to look at what the disciples saw here, Lord, I pray that you would guide us into this, and I pray that, that it would show us who, who Jesus is. Um, Lord, I pray that we might see more clearly who our Savior is. Um, Lord, and as a result of that, I pray that, that you would urge us, urge us just like you did these people here, these, these three men who go, go with Jesus to see this transfiguration. Lord, I pray that you would urge us to listen to him. Um, that we might look to Jesus, that we might, might hear what he says, and we might apply it to our lives. So, Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, again, bathed in Old Testament imagery, just filled with Old Testament imagery. And as we get into this, we need to remember not only who Matthew is writing to, but who these three men are. These are Jewish men. Right? These are men who would have known the Old Testament scriptures, at least to a degree they would have known them. They would have been familiar with much of the Old Testament. And we probably ought to understand that what they're seeing and what they're hearing is bathed in the imagery from the Old Testament. So I don't want us to miss that because it helps us to really understand who Jesus is if we understand this in its context. So 
I want us to see these 10 Old Testament allusions. I'm going to work through them one by one. Uh, we're going to go pretty quick through them. That's my goal because I, I laughed the other day and I said, you know what, I'm going to preach a 13-point sermon. Um, that's, a, that's a good way to lose your job, Jared. Um, so we're going to work through these here pretty quick, these 10 Old Testament allusions. But I want you to see then how these allusions to the Old Testament really help us to see who Jesus is. So we're going to look at three ways they identify Jesus. And hopefully we'll end with just one, one final plea to listen to him. So these 10 Old Testament allusions. First, we find the high, this high mountain. Okay, Verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, I always thought it was interesting that it's just Peter, James, and John who go with Jesus to some of these events like the Transfiguration. Um, remember that there are at least 12 disciples specifically named who are following Jesus. At least 12. Um, really, there's more than that because there are also women who would have been considered Jesus' disciples, even if they weren't among the 12 that are named. There were women who were following Jesus, who were becoming his disciples. Plus, there was a broader group that are referred to disciples elsewhere. So Jesus has more than just these three disciples. But it's only them who Jesus comes and says, come with me up on this mountain. Come with me. Specifically took this group of three with him to be eyewitnesses of this incredible scene. Um, now, just one thing to remember, uh, discipleship, the thing that we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks, what this discipleship thing is, following Jesus, learning from him as our teacher, um, this happens when the group is small enough for intimacy. Um, the crowd is great. Jesus preaches to the crowd, and he certainly doesn't ignore them. Um, but then he boils it down to 12, and from those 12, he chooses three who are kind of his inner circle. Um, so just understand, as we seek to be discipled, as we seek to grow and learn, um, smaller and intimate groups are important. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad you all are here, and I'm glad that we're together as a crowd for the purpose of learning who Jesus is and growing closer to him. But discipleship happens as you get into those smaller groups and you focus on who Jesus is together. Okay, So... He gives this special treatment to these three. And he leads them by themselves up on, it says, a high mountain. Now, um, I thought it was fascinating this week as I was reading about this high mountain and where this was and all the theories on what mountain it was Jesus led them up on. Um, and boy, there are a bunch of them. Uh, the three most popular, one said it was Mount Tabor, which is possible. One said it was Mount Hermon because Mount Tabor isn't really a high mountain. It's about 2,000 feet in elevation. Uh, Mount Hermon's five times that. So some said, well, if it's a high mountain, it must have been Mount Tabor. And then another commentary actually said, well, no, it must be Mount Mirren. It's the highest mountain within Israel, so it's probably that one. Um, and I, read, I read all these, and I'm like, the real question is this. Does it matter? <laughs> does it matter which mountain it is? Um, and I would contend that that's not the important part. Which mountain I don't think is near as important as the fact that it was a mountain. He leads them up a high mountain. Okay, And the reason I think that that's the important part is because this mountain, it brings to mind scenes that occur both with Moses and Elijah. It brings to mind these scenes, especially, keep in mind, these are Jewish men. And Matthew's writing to this first century Jewish audience. So it just brings their minds to these scenes with both Moses and Elijah. Moses, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3, it says, Moses went up, on, up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. 
So we have this incredible mountain scene, and that's just one that happens in Exodus. Um, so there's this scene with the mountain as Moses goes up. And then Elijah, as he's fleeing for his life, an angel appears to him and tells him to go on a journey. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 19, it says, He walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him. Okay, again, they have these scenes where they encounter God on a high mountain, on a mountain. So the mountains, in both Moses' case and Elijah's case, in both of them, God passes by, it says. In both instances, God passes by. So they have the presence of God come by them as they're on these mountains. Now, there are countless other examples I could give you of mountains in the Old Testament where God's presence is clearly seen. But what I want you to hear is this. This mountain is a picture that should point us back to God's presence from the Old Testament. We find God's presence there. So that's the first illusion of the Old Testament. Second, uh, there's his face that shines. The shining face, right? Um, This one just blows my mind. Y'all, you know, uh, I've heard some people say, well, especially whenever there's an expecting mother, they say, well, she's glowing. Oh, oh no, Jesus was actually glowing. Like, actually glowing. So he takes these three up, they go up on the mountain, and in verse 2 it says, He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Now, in the Christian Standard Bible it says transfigured. Some of your translations will say something different. Um, But here it says that Jesus was transfigured. And the word is a fun one. Like, this is a fun Greek word. It's metamorpho. Um, metamorpho, okay? And I hope that you can hear, even in that Greek word, metamorpho, I hope you can hear the word metamorphosis. Y'all familiar with what metamorphosis is, right? We can go with stages of a, of a butterfly. You start out as an egg, they hatch into a caterpillar, they go into a chrysalis, emerge as a butterfly, right? They change. They change. And that's what this word is. It means to be changed or to be transformed. Um, and really what this word in the Greek indicates it indicates is an inward change that is often reflected outwardly. It's an inward change that's often reflected outwardly. Now, um, uh, we're going to talk about the, the face shining and the clothes here in just a moment, but I don't want to miss the significance of what's happening here. Because um, we could miss the significance of this if we're not careful. This single moment is um, it's a sort of glimpse, as, as one commentator put it. He said it's a, a glimpse of his pre-incarnate glory. See, Jesus is the eternal word. He was there in the beginning. He is eternal. He's always been there. He is God, but he's taken on flesh. And this is just a glimpse of his deity bursting through the flesh. And we get just a picture of this. So the glory of God is now beaming through Jesus. And the reason I say this is so significant is both, uh, both Peter and John later reflect on this moment. Both of them indicate this moment. I mean, John in uh, chapter 1 verse 14, he talks about beholding, beholding Jesus' glory. Knowing who he is. And then Peter, later on in Peter 2.16, he says that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw it. They were witnesses. Like this was a real thing that they actually saw that, that changed them. That later on they start reflecting on. They look back and they saw, said, we saw Jesus and his glory shining through. Like we saw it. It was there. We were eyewitnesses of this event. And this moment is Jesus undeniably and unquestionably and unconditionally revealing his identity as God in the flesh. So this is sort of a defining moment, and not just in Matthew's gospel, 
But this is kind of a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. Because he's undoubtedly saying, I am God. Without saying a word, he's showing his deity. So sort of a defining moment as he reveals his glory. And the fact that it's his glory is going to be important here in just a moment. Now, let's talk about this face shining in the white clothes. Um, and the reason this is an allusion to the Old Testament is, many of you know, it should remind us of Exodus chapter 34 again, where Moses, he goes up on a mountain, and he has this encounter with God as God passes by. And then whenever he comes down from the mountain, as he's coming down, the people see him, and they start, like, start having a panic attack. Like, they start freaking out, and they're saying, what, what, what is happening? Moses, your face is glowing. Like, you are glowing. And they, they get scared. In Exodus 34, 30, it says, When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. It looked like something out of a crazy sci-fi movie as he comes down and he is glowing. So they say, uh, don't come near us. We don't know what's going on with you. So they had, to, they had Moses put a veil over his face when he was with them so that the people wouldn't, wouldn't spaz out. So... The reason that Moses' face shone, however, was because of God's radiance on him. Um, we're going to find here in just a minute that Jesus' face shone because of God's radiance in him. So there is a difference, but we see this picture from the Old Testament, this shining face. Okay? So, we find the shining face, and then we're going to get a two-for-one here for the sake of keeping things moving. We find the presence of Moses and the presence of Elijah, pointing us back to the Old Testament again. So, verse 3. Verse 3, it says, Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So now these two prominent Old Testament figures show up, and they're just having a chat with what I'm going to call radioactive Jesus. Um, they're just having this talk with him. And let's think about why these two men are the ones that are present. Why these two men, specifically? Okay, well, let's think about who Moses was. He was the first recipient of the law, and then he passed it on to the nation of Israel. Right? Okay, receives the law from God, passes it on. So he was seen as a sort of model for all prophets who would come and who would speak on behalf of God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it tells us that God intended to raise up a prophet like Moses. Like Moses. Now, not Moses himself, but one like Moses. And that's who Jesus is. He's this one who came in the likeness of Moses. But again, as we're going to see here in just a minute, Jesus is different and greater. All right. And in the same breath, he says, oh yeah, by the way, there was Elijah also. And Elijah was to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And again, more on that here in just a minute, because we're going to see what Jesus has to say about him. But to tie these two back together, we get this word from the prophet Malachi in the very last book of the Old Testament. Like we're in Matthew right now, so if you just flip back a few pages, you're going to run into Malachi. Um, and in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. These two are linked together. As the day of the Lord comes. Linked together. Okay? Now we can summarize Moses and Elijah kind of like this. Moses, in a way, represents the law. He was the one who gave the law. Elijah was a prophet. Or you call him the prophet. He was a prophet of God. So with these two, Moses and Elijah, we have the law and the prophets. Now, just think with me for a moment of another place Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. It would be when he says, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. 
And now, as they're up here on this mountain with God's glory beaming through Jesus, here's Moses and Elijah, the two that represent the law and the prophets. And we're going to see these two present in this moment. The very presence of Moses and Elijah point us back to the Old Testament. But it's here, as they see these things, uh, that poor, sweet, well-intentioned Peter opens his mouth. Okay. Um, I'm going to pick on Peter, but understand that's probably not fair because Peter is a hero of the faith. Um, so I'm going to beat up on him just a little bit and understand if he was here, he would shut me up real quick. So I, I recognize that. Um, but at the same time, he, I believe he speaks out of turn here. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Okay. Again, um, where it says shelters, it could also be translated as, a, as tents, and I thought about adding an allusion to the Old Testament with that tent, but we can just keep moving past that one because I think it misses the point. So until this week, I never thought too much about this statement from Peter. Um, I just really hadn't. Like, it's good for us to be here. I'll set up these, these shelters for you. Um, and I just kind of read it and glossed over it. But what, what, is, what is Peter doing as he says this? What is he doing? Well, effectively, what he's doing is he's placing a moat He's placing Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. He's saying, Lord, we need the law, the prophets, and Jesus. We need, we need all of them. He's wanting to keep them all there, and I believe that's why God then intervenes, which leads us to our next allusion to the Old Testament, which is the cloud. Verse 5, it says, while Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. And there are too many Old Testament pictures to choose from with the cloud. Um, there are allusions to Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Zephaniah, and I'm sure that there are others. But it, the one I want to point out is Exodus 34, 5. And it says, as God, came, as God comes down to meet Moses on the mountain, he does so in a cloud. Comes in a cloud. And this cloud is a common picture of God's presence. And then we get this voice from the cloud, which is another picture from the Old Testament. It says, As a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here, God declares in front of these three disciples that Jesus is, in fact, the pleasing Son of God. Okay, now, keep in mind what Peter was doing. He was placing Jesus and Moses and Elijah all on the same plane. And God's voice comes booming out of this cloud and says, No, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He is my beloved son. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not saying Moses and Elijah, they were terrible dudes and you have nothing to do with them. No, he's saying Jesus is higher. Jesus is greater, even than Moses and Elijah. And this voice from the cloud is reminiscent, again, of Exodus 34, and we'll talk about him here in just a moment. Now, then there's this command to listen to him. Again, pointing us back to the Old Testament, this command to listen. Verse 5 ends with this simple command. Now, it seems very simple. It just says, listen to him. Listen to him. Um, y'all, it's not enough. Just stick with me for a minute. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. Uh, there's a lot of people who know who Jesus is. There were a lot of people, even in the Bible, who knew who Jesus was. Um, you know what? James actually says that even the demons believe. Um, it's not enough to know who Jesus is. There's this command that says, listen to him. Jesus is the King. He's the radiance of God. He is God in the flesh. And for that reason, we're not just obligated to say, yeah, okay, I know who Jesus is. No, 
we are obligated to listen to him. And again, this points us back to Deuteronomy 18.15, which I just briefly mentioned earlier. But here, just stay with me. It says this. It says, the Lord will raise up for you a, a prophet like me, Moses speaking. Uh, he'll raise up a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. You must listen to him. Now, God is saying in perfectly clear terms that Jesus is the one like Moses, one that these disciples, and by connection, all people, must obey. See, whenever we're called to the Christian faith, we're not called simply to know something different. We're called to do something different. Now, I'm not telling you that this is a salvation by works. Don't miss my point. You're never going to work your way into being good enough. It's just not going to happen. But what I do believe is we have a responsibility to the best of our ability to obey him. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's to learn from and to follow after our teacher. So here we get this command that points us back to the Old Testament to listen to him. That's our responsibility, to listen to him. Now, are you ever going to do that perfectly? No. Did Peter, did Peter do that perfectly from here on out? <laughs> Read the rest of the New Testament. You're going to find Peter, de- Peter definitely doesn't do it perfectly. He messes it up several times from here on out. But what he does is he strives to follow after Jesus and to become more like him, to listen to him. So there's a voice from the cloud, command to listen to him. And then we get this, this fear, this fear that points us back again to the Old Testament. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. And again, as God comes to the mountain and speaks with Moses, the people fear the voice from the bottom of the mountain and see the fire, the cloud, and the darkness. And it says that they're afraid. They wouldn't even go near the mountain because they were so terrified. And they go to Moses and say, we can't go up the mountain. You go for us. We're just going to stay down here where we're safe. Because if we go up, God will kill us. There's this fear that's present. And they tell Moses he has to be the go-between because they're too scared. And this fear is a common reaction throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. I mean, we just celebrated Christmas. Think about the shepherds. They're out here watching their flock, minding their own business. And the shepherds show up and the, the shepherds are all, or, yeah, the shepherds show up. The angels show up and the shepherds look up and they're like, oh, that's cool. No, they fall down and they're terrified. They are scared, which, by the way, is why I don't like the naked angel babies. Um, I'm not a fan of those decorations, like the cute little baby angels. That's not a biblical angel. I've never been scared of it. That's not true. I have been scared of a naked baby. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's not the picture we get. We get this fear. The shepherds were terrified. Terrified of them. And again, we get this picture as they see and hear God's voice. They respond with fear. And much like the shepherds in the New Testament at the birth of Jesus, um, here Jesus tells them not to be afraid. And when they look up, the others are gone and it's just Jesus there. So they come down the mountain together and Jesus again, like he often does, he warns them. He says, don't tell anybody. At least not till the Son of Man has been raised. So for now, just keep this between us. There will be a time for you to tell. Okay. Now, if that's the case, if there was a time to tell and it's after the resurrection of the Son of Man, what should we do? We should probably tell people, right? Probably tell people because it's after the resurrection. So that's where we're at. So we should probably tell people what we've seen and what we've heard. Um, Just a bit of a side note. But he tells them for a time, keep this to yourselves. But this got the disciples to thinking. This got them to thinking, okay? They ask, why then, okay, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? 
Why did they say that Elijah must come first? And they're kind of confused, right? They saw Elijah come, kind of, for a moment. He was there briefly, at least. Here at the transfiguration scene, they're like, surely that's not, surely that's not what the scriptures were pointing to, is it? Well, then we get Jesus' response, which talks about Elijah's restoration, our next picture from the Old Testament. And Jesus' response again points us back. Verse 11, he says, Elijah is coming and will restore everything. Okay, now we already touched on this a little bit, but Elijah is sort of the prototypical prophet. Um, and he was to be this forerunner to the Messiah. But verse 12, he, Jesus says, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. Now, eventually these disciples, they did realize who Jesus was referring to, right? And it says in verse 13, it's like, oh, hey, we get it now. All right. But at first they were confused. Because again, Jesus seems to be the Messiah, but where is Elijah that was to come to restore everything like he was supposed to? Where is he? Um, Whenever they realized it, though, they realized, oh, hey, John came, and he pointed people back to what they were supposed to be headed towards in the first place. He told them, repent, repent, turn back, repent, and be baptized, is what John told them. So John came, and although he didn't restore the government like they may have anticipated, he was restoring what he was here to restore. He was turning people back to the direction they were supposed to be headed. And this restoration points us backward so that we can then move forward. Which leads us to our last allusion to the Old Testament, which was the death of the prophet or the suffering servant. The suffering servant. Not only did Elijah come, but Jesus says they did whatever they wanted to him. Whatever they wanted to him. Okay, um, this phrase, did whatever they wanted, is actually in, in, in early Greek, it was often, often linked to tyranny. Just people doing whatever they wanted to do. There's no rules, no regulations. They did whatever was pleasing to them. And then Jesus repeats this prediction of his own suffering and death. See, Jesus, Jesus is telling them that he would be in a long line of prophets, including John the Baptist, who were rejected and killed because they stood with the Lord. Um, it seems like I told you all last week, maybe I'm misremembering what I said, but it seems like I told you last week that following Jesus will cost you everything. It includes death to self. Um, and here Jesus is saying, look, going where God has called me to go is going to lead to my death. But he's saying, I am standing with a long line of prophets who were rejected and killed, including the Elijah that was to come. And this links Jesus not only with the prophets in general, but with a figure in Isaiah's writing that, uh, that's become known as this suffering servant. Now, most of you, even if you aren't familiar with the phrase suffering servant, which I'm sure most of you are, but even if you're not familiar with that phrase, you're familiar with the passage that refers to the suffering servant. Um, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. I thought it would be worth our time just to read this. And this may sound familiar. It'd probably sound more familiar if I read it from a different translation. But here we go. It says, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. And he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Most of you probably heard, by his wounds we are healed. Here it is, a suffering servant. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And this idea of Jesus suffering and dying points us back to this idea of a suffering servant. 
Now, it may not have been exactly what these disciples were looking for, but it pointed them back to the Old Testament. It got them thinking, at least, about what was happening here. So, ten illusions of the Old Testament. Now, we can summarize these ten illusions to the Old Testament by seeing how they identify Jesus in these three ways. Okay, uh, First, it identifies Jesus as the greater Moses. As the greater Moses. Okay, clearly, clearly there are striking similarities between Jesus and Moses. I hope you see how Jesus is a sort of Moses. Um, I hope you can kind of get that picture. Um, while God was the one who gave the law, he did so through Moses. Okay? Moses was a sort of intermediary for God and man, and he alone spoke with God and then delivered the message to the people. Okay? And Jesus would also come to be an intermediary, this go-between God and man. So I hope you can see, see this, this connection here. And like Moses, Jesus goes between, but instead of doing so imperfectly like Moses does, Jesus goes back and forth between God and man perfectly. He not only reveals God's perfect standard, but he fulfills it. See, Moses may have come and brought the law and said, here's God's standard. Jesus is the one who fulfills it or fills it up. He's the one that it ultimately points us to. Jesus lived the perfect life, which Moses didn't. He died in the place of mankind, which Moses couldn't, and he was raised for our justification. So while Jesus is a type of Moses, he is a greater Moses. He is the perfect intermediary that we need. And if you don't know what all that means, I encourage you to go read the book of Hebrews, and you'll see how Jesus is the perfect intermediary. The perfect, in, he gives us perfect intercession. So Jesus is the prophet that would come in the likeness of Moses, right? Deuteronomy 18, 15, there would be one in the likeness of Moses. And here it's Jesus. The difference, Jesus is greater. So Jesus is a greater Moses. We could also summarize this by saying that he's the perfect prophet, the perfect prophet, right? We have the law and the prophets, the law with Moses, the prophets with Elijah. And again, the similarities between Jesus and the prophets abound. Jesus spoke on behalf of God like the prophets did. He suffered with the prophets. And in this transfiguration scene alone, there could be connections to all of these prophets, including Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, and there are others. Um, so there are connections with Jesus to the prophets. Clearly, he was seen as a prophet by the people. So, sure... Sure, he's one of the prophets, but he is the perfect prophet. And again, there's a difference between him and the rest of them. There's a difference. These prophets were only able to speak what God revealed to them. Jesus, however, spoke perfectly from God. You know how he did that? By being God. God in the flesh. He was the one who knew the Father perfectly and completely. Now, see, the prophets of the Old Testament, including John the Baptist, they were... They were incomplete. They were imperfect men. They didn't have it all figured out. They didn't know everything as it was going to happen. They only knew what God revealed to them when he revealed it to them. Jesus was different. He had all things entrusted to him by the Father. He was not only a prophet. He was the greater prophet to whom all other prophets pointed us. Um, and again, that's why I believe Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Both. So Jesus is the greater Moses. He's a perfect prophet. But finally, the third way we see this is Jesus is the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Um, one more time. I just want to point you back to the scripture. Okay, look, look with me at verse 2 again. It says, He was transfigured, in other words, he was metamorphosized, in front of them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Now, if you remember again what this word metamorphosis or uh, metamorpho, this transfiguration, what it actually means is um, it indicates an inward change. Okay? 
something coming from inside that is often reflected externally. Okay? What or who Jesus was began to break through from the inside out here. Okay? It began, began to become apparent on the outside. See, whenever we look at Moses and his scene as his face shines, again, the glory that is radiating from him comes from an external source, right? It's because God passed by that now Moses is radiating God's glory. Jesus, however, in verse 2, is before the Father speaks, before the cloud comes. Jesus is radiating God's glory from within because that's where God's glory is. Jesus is the glory of God, so he has this, this glory just radiating out of him, coming from him, beaming from within. Um, I believe that's why the, authors, the author of Hebrews 1.3, he says it like this. He says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Jesus is God. He is the glory of God. Jesus doesn't just reflect God's glory. He is that glory. And that is a substantial difference. So Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the perfect prophet. He's the glory of God. So what? Well, this comes back to what we talked about last week, right? What are we supposed to do? These disciples knew who Jesus was. They knew who he was now, right? But the question then is, why did that matter? Because again, would they be perfect? Well, certainly not. Uh, would it keep them from never running away? No. Um, how many times does Peter deny Jesus? Um, just that we know of. <laughs> but what this moment did is it was helped them realize that they were not only learning from a teacher or a rabbi, but from the teacher. From the teacher. Not just an expert in the law, but the one who came to fulfill the law. Not just another prophet, but the one to whom all the prophets pointed. This was their king. See, what we're commanded to do whenever we become Christians is not to do some simple thing like go to church, although I do believe that's included. I'm glad y'all are here today. Glad you're here. It's a great place to be, isn't it? We are told to obey Him. Um, it's not so simple as, as we oftentimes like to think it is. Now, again, I'm not trying to build up some form of legalism that says if you screw up, you're kicked out. That's not the point. The point is, if we truly know who Jesus is and we say we belong to him, that we want to be disciples of the king, it means that we obey him. We strive to follow after him, to do what he has commanded. Now, that means a few things. First, it means you better know what he's commanded. I mean, we say we want to follow Jesus. Well, you better know where Jesus is going then, right? You can't follow someone if you don't know where they're at. I mean, if I blindfolded you right now, and give you a dart and tell you to try to hit me, I'm going to feel pretty confident you're not going to hit me. Um, why? Because you can't see. You don't know where you're going. See, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to do all that he's commanded, if we're going to listen to him, we probably ought to know what he said. Sound like a good idea to you all? Okay, now this might be, again, I, I've used this application before, but this is incredibly simple, but it's incredibly important. Here's the application for today. Read your Bible. That's a crazy concept, but read your Bible. I mean, whenever we say we want to listen to him, we probably ought to know what he said. So then we go and we teach others what he has commanded also. See, this is part of the Great Commission. Most of you are familiar with it, right? Um, Jesus says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Okay, so we often hear that and we think, well, let's make some converts. Well, that's a start. But that's not what he said to do. He said to make disciples. In other words, make followers. 
So we are told to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing. We're good about that, right? So we're like, okay, well, you've come to Jesus now. Now let's find some water and let's get you in some water. Let's get you baptized. That's a great place to start. Absolutely fantastic. It's like this entry into, into this life where we're following after Jesus. So I'm a disciple now. I'm in the water. I'm declaring I'm dead and I'm going to follow after Jesus with my life. Excellent. It's over? Not quite. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, there's this other part, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So there's another part to discipleship. See, we oftentimes leave that part out. Look, if I, if I talk to you and I'm like, okay, so what's going on in your life? I ask you about what you're reading. My goal isn't to just make you feel guilty for not reading your Bible that day. Um, if I talk to you and you, you say, well, I've got this particular sin in my life, and I'm like, well, hey, you need to repent of that sin. My goal is not to be like, hey, you are a filthy, rotten sinner. My goal is to say, hey, you're a filthy, rotten sinner, but there's still hope for you. Follow Jesus. That's part of what we're commanded to do. We're to teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. So first, we better know what it is. We better, two, we better be striving to do what he's commanded us to do also. But then we go and we teach others to do likewise, to follow after Jesus. Now, not, so, not in a domineering, aggressive, like I hate you if you don't follow this right kind of way. No, we're supposed to do so in a loving way. We're even told to correct one another gently. Like we should absolutely love one another and urge one another on to faith and good works. So how do we do that? Realistically, what does that look like? Well, okay, you better know the word. You should strive to follow the word. Obey your teacher. But then we go and we love God with everything we have. And we love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think the simplest way to conclude um, this, this today is simply by reading God's word one more time. Um, I'm just going to read what he said in verse 5. What God says from the cloud in verse 5. He says, this is my beloved son. Pointing to Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Look, you and I have messed it up. We have not lived pleasing lives. I promise you, you are a sinner who is desperately in need of God's grace. We have not lived pleasing lives. But Jesus did. He said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And that's what I want to leave you with today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are, um, <laughs> we are hopeless without you. Uh, Lord, without you, we really have no reason to hope. But because you are good... Because you are loving, because you are kind and gracious and gentle and long-suffering. Uh, Lord, for that reason, we have hope. Um, hope that while we were dead in our sins, you made a way for us to be alive in Christ. So, Father, today we thank you. Um, Lord, as we see this scene play out on the pages of Scripture, this transfiguration, um, Lord, I just want to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us that you've shown us who you are, that we don't have to question whether Jesus was actually God in the flesh or not. Instead, we can know because we have these eyewitness accounts. Uh, so, Lord, for that, I thank you. Lord, I pray that as we, as we strive to follow him, as we hear these words and we strive to follow after him, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength because on our own, we're not going to be able to do it. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would send your spirit, your, the helper, the advocate, Lord, that, that you... You, by the Spirit, would empower us to live faithful lives. Um, Lord, I, there may be some here today who have never heard, never heard of this, never heard that um, there's something bigger than just praying a prayer, walking an aisle, getting in a tub. Um, Lord, that there is a response 
that's necessary. Um, Lord, I pray that you would convict them of sin and that you would call them to yourselves, to yourself, Lord, and that uh, they might come to know you. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you would make that happen. Lord, but also for those of us who, who claim to be your disciples, who say we follow you, God, uh, I pray that you would just renew that conviction in our lives just to follow you. Not to say it's good enough to do some mindless things, but instead we are focused. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us a new focus on Jesus, that we might follow after him and do what he's commanded. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, that you would guide us and direct us. And, Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.